Hello, welcome Heartfelt Leaders to Practicing Life podcast with me, your host, Ashley Pitzer. I am a fantasy author, life coach, and hypnotist, and I am against perfectionism, which is why this talk show is called Practicing. This is a place where we normalize mistakes, failures, and difficult decisions and transform them into blessings. This podcast is about sharing life lessons and the stories around overcoming them and what was learned from them. There is no one way to live life, but you can all learn from others and decide what works best for you. I am here to support, lift up, and help heartfelt leaders like you be seen. If you are ready to hear people's stories and really see them, then stay tuned. Hello, hello, heartfelt leaders. This is Ashley Pitzer, your host with Practicing Life Podcast. And today I have another guest that I am interviewing. His name is Kurt Westwood, and he is the author of The Very Best Bad Ideas. You probably can see for those watching on YouTube, his background. I want to read a little bit about his a bio, and we're going to jump in and start asking him some questions. I'm super excited to have him. I met him through TikTok randomly, which is super cool, right? Because you can meet people anywhere. And his book sounds absolutely ideal for my audience. And knowing that, you know, a lot of things happen in our lives, a lot of mistakes happen that lead to wonderful, good things. So let's learn a little bit about Kirk. Beth Kirk Westwood is a storyteller. He is the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Glass River Media, named a top 25 strategic communication agency by the Washington Business Journal. Kirk has contributed to Hollywood films, television programs, national commercials, and music videos. He has worked freelance as a photographer, blogger, web streamer and consultant and for the government as a communication specialist and public affairs specialist. No matter what his professional title has been, Kirk's job description has always been a variation of the same thing to tell stories. So welcome to the podcast. I am so happy to have you and, um, You know, one of the reasons I brought you on this podcast is because I felt very motivated, especially with writing my first fantasy novel and putting it out into the world. And I just had this big heart for all of the people that have gone through the task of writing a book and the journey that it is, because it is definitely one that is in the trenches of looking at your own like dark shadows and the things that you don't want to see. Everything comes up for you when you write a book. And so I put a call out to the world you know, that, hey, anybody who's self-publishing, anybody that's written a book, come onto my podcast, let's hear it. And you were one of the people that responded. And so I want to hear all about your book. I want to know what caused you to write this book. So let's hear your story. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's good. And it's one of those things, you know, I, I could start it any number of ways, but because the story as with your book, I'm sure with every book I've ever, you know, the story starts a decade before the story starts, you know, it all, or, or more, you know, I have been, uh, everyone has their own growing up story. I'm first grade through ninth grade. I never went to the same school two years in a row. I moved more or less 
every other year to every year. But, you know, because of district changes or I went from middle school to, you know, high school or whatever from first to ninth grade, I never attended the same school two years in a row. I never got into that stage where of, of comfortability of with my own ideas. I never got in that stage of where where, you know, you got into a click and a rhythm with your friends. I, I didn't have friends for longer than a few weeks or months until high school. And I'm still friends with one of the co-owners of my studio here is a friend from high school. I, I, but I didn't meet anyone that had any kind of staying power or any kind of tribe as it's called or culture or group that I was consistent with, uh, until my, my mid to late teens. And then, I, I went to I went to film school. I moved to Los Angeles, and that's a very non-homogenous. Lots of different groups, lots of different opinions, lots of crazy creatives, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, and due to kind of the housing crisis and the SAG strike and the writer strike in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, the film industry took a big about a two year blip, and I ended up not being able to survive it in Los Angeles with two children at the time. Mm, yeah. Uh, so insert chapter here and there, I moved to DC where I'd gone to high school. I'd lived here in, uh, I'd lived in the DC area where I am now in, in high school and I moved back. Um, and I got a job in the cutthroat, never say die world of cre of uh, government contracting. Um, and I learned that that is in fact where good ideas go to die. Um, <laughs> and I wish that I was kidding. It's, I spent three years and I'd gone from moving around all the time and meeting people of all these crazy diverse ideas and crazy. Then I moved to LA with people with just, what if we light it on fire? Like, I mean, these, there was no idea too bad. There was no, there was no idea that wasn't worth talking about. And suddenly I move um, into government contracting and I'm doing the same thing. Like you said, in my bio, I was doing the exact same thing. I was, I was a video communications specialist, which meant I was a filmmaker. I had a video camera. I made different videos for different programs and I was doing the same thing. And at one point, a project that was had a significant price tag was held up for nine months as I was done. And people were fighting over the color, size, and choice of font. And no, I'm not kidding. Like nine months of it traveling from department to department, me spending literal days and sometimes weeks going, I only have two projects on my desk right now, and both of them are on someone else's desk waiting for approval. But that person's on leave and this person... And all of a sudden, my life came to this kind of screeching halt of where, and I started just paying attention to people, paying attention to what they were doing. And a lot of these guys had been in the government for 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. And I started paying attention in meetings and watching quirky, off-color ideas get shot down hard. Like, you know, shut up, Steve. Like, not now. This isn't the time for that. Go write your blog. Like there, there was just no, there was no space for creative expression anymore. There was no, there was no culture for it. And so I started kind of talking to coworkers in other contracts, like friends that were in other government contracts. And I started kind of reaching out and asking around about this and reading about this because I hadn't experienced it. I had had this whole life. I'd had this life of, of so much diversity and so much creativity and so much. That's somewhat misleading. I had had, I had spent my whole life learning about new cultures. Even if I was moving within the United States, I was moving across the United States where if you're moving from Texas to Massachusetts, that's not the same culture anymore. Like oh. I spent my whole life learning about how am I going to fit into this culture? And all of a sudden I'm 
you know, in my 30s and I am uh, late 20s. I'm in my late 20s and I'm in government contracting and I am just utter culture shock. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to a coworker one day about this problem we're having in, in the department. And he's like, you know what would fix this? And he lays out the most eloquent, simple, concise plan. I was like, dude, that's the idea. There it is. You need the solution. That's, that's, let's go, let's go talk. And they're like, he's like, nope. And I was like, what do you mean? No. Like why, why no? That, that solves everything. And he says, look, I've been here for 17 years. Um, in the government. And I'm just tired of being told I'm stupid. I'm tired of no one even listening till I finish the paragraph. I'm tired of, of not, uh, not being taken seriously because my ideas don't sound like theirs. So I'm going to finish, you know, I'm getting, I'm retiring in three years. I'm going to go open a bakery and I'm just going to bake the rest. I was like, this guy was Ivy league educated, brilliant and had the creativity, ingenuity, innovation and, and spark just beaten out of him. I was like, man, this just must be the government. I got to get out of government contracting. And so I started asking around and realized that that wasn't the government, that that was actually really, really common. And then I started kind of thinking about it and talking to more people and interviewing more people. And I realized that lots of my clients had experienced that. And in fact, LA is where you go when you're tired of hearing no. Like that's, I started reaching out to my old colleagues in in Los Angeles and that's why they'd moved to LA, somewhere that took dreams seriously. And Uh, so to make a long story longer, I, uh, I decided that I was going to talk about bad ideas and I reached out to some publishers and I found one that would kind of coach me through it. And the first stage that was, he's like, no one cares about bad ideas until you can explain about good ideas. You need to write me a book on the history of thinking. And that started the, the kind of multi-year thing of calling neurologists and psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists and every other ist possible and just kind of chronicling why we're afraid of feeling stupid, why my friend would rather sit down and shut up than than fear changing something. And that journey led me through, like you said, the the highest I've ever been, the lowest I've ever been, the saddest I've ever been, the most defeated I've ever been. And it was a multi-year process of just learning why we as people function the way we do and uh, it became the very best bad idea. Um, I love it. And I've also have worked um, for governments. So <laughs> with you, and I know it's also in corporations as well. So it's it sounds really fabulous. I've never lived in LA, but it sounds very fabulous to be able to go to a place that possibilities are open. Just that alone is inspiring. Absolutely. And I, I did love it. And I, I don't want to paint LA in a... In a LA is also, you know, as you'll hear, there's certainly a layer of fake to it. And there's certainly a level of cutthroat to it. And there's certainly a level of hyper, hyper, hyper uh, competition. And the thing is that you can have a movie come out and absolutely flop. And someone will still give you it. Someone will still fund your next one. Someone will still give you, because as long as the idea is there and you have shown any degree of ability to make it like if you only have one movie or a series of flops it becomes harder but like as long as the idea is worth talking about and often if it isn't like there are movies out there that are some of my favorites and i'm not going to plug any particularly by name but there there are movies out there that i joke around i was like i love this movie but if anyone tells you they know what it's about they're lying watch this movie it's not a it's just it's it's the craziest strangest idea yeah. And 
we that can exist and i've seen it exist and i've done it outside of la it doesn't need to be film it doesn't need to be television it doesn't need to be creative i talk about this in the book as well i i got talking to accountants and they're like well that's great in the creative industry but i'm an accountant i don't have room for creativity and i'm like you are so wrong math is remarkably creative mark is insane mark math is insanely creative we just don't teach math creatively and if we did that changes the picture yeah. I mean, it, it really, whatever teacher you do have and how they feel about it passionately does affect everything. So now I'm kind of curious because one of the things that I do is study the brain. So when you're talking about all these isms, these is, I mean, that is study. So, um, I absolutely, well, I haven't, for all the audience, I haven't read this book yet. I've read about the book, but not the book itself. So please feel free to share what you want to share on the, the podcast without giving away everything, you know, but uh, um, from somebody who studies kind of how the brain functions, I definitely have my own bias, if you will, on sure. things as well as what I've, um, I've experienced. So, um, you know, have you looked at, uh, like hypnotism before? Have you? So the short answer to that is, I mean, the short answer is not as much as I would like. And I mean that genuinely, I was talking to a, uh, a, a hypnotist, a, a professional hypnotist a year, or two, kind of very early COVID we were talking on the phone. Uh, the book was already out, so it wasn't regarding okay. the book, but it was, and and I'm super fascinated. I've watched a few documentaries, some of them a little more goofy and, and crazy out there than others that are far more about, but not in any substantive way. Like, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to pretend or, or flex like, oh yeah, totally. No, a little bit. I'm fascinated by it. I believe in the potential of it. I think that I have been professionally therapeutically hypnotized once and I thought it was incredible. I It was a great uh, like four hour experience. Uh, that I genuinely enjoyed, but, but no, not so much. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't always have to be. So as, as a background for me, like, um, I was a yoga instructor for 10 plus years. I still pop in and teach. It's almost impossible because anybody that knows me knows that I've taught and have taken one of my classes most likely. And then they want me to teach more. So it's like something you can never retire from, but, um, Anyway, meditation is very much like hypnosis. Sure. And so, um, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be hypnosis. It doesn't need to be meditation. It can be any number of things that kind of transports your mind into possibility. So Absolutely. when you wrote this book, was this book something along the lines where you, you interviewed all these people and it was like, like a chicken noodle soup and you kind of incorporated their stories into your book? Or did you collectively look at the data and kind of like give people synapses of what is most common? Oh, it's a super good question. So, um, so this, this isn't uncommon from other nonfiction authors I've talked to. The book I started writing is not the book that I finished. Oh yeah. All. It it's <laughs> like they they like like unrelated, not the same title. The original title was Release the Creative, um, uh, which is now a section of the book is called Release the Creative. Um, the second title of the book was called Make Friends with the Mouse. Uh, and there's reasons for that. The third title is the very I set out to write a story about how you shouldn't be afraid to be creative, release the creative. And it was, it was about that. And I was talking to my editor 
And he was like, okay, so, you know, write out kind of what you're thinking and not don't go for confirmation bias very genuinely and legitimately find you know you don't have a, an education in this so to speak of i have a master's degree in public relations and, a, and an undergrad in in film and television so like i don't have a credential that would make me technically you know allowed to speak about really any of this so i was like well i just kind of want to ask people so i literally i called nyu and I asked to talk to someone in their uh, in their neuroscience department, and oh, I had a two, and and someone was like, "Absolutely, that sounds great." I called uh, Georgetown, and I asked to talk to someone in their philosophy department, and they gave me an associate dean, not associate dean, associate uh, uh, professor to speak to, uh, and we had a great three four hour conversation. I I started calling around these universities and these places, and just I didn't tell them what I wanted them to say. I asked them just. So why do we do this? What's going on? Explain this to me. Like, but why this, that? And I just started taking notes. And then I would sometimes follow up with them in a subsequent interview, or I would then take that interview and then do a subsequent interview with someone else and ask them their thoughts on this new information that I had. Yeah. And it just kept whittling down and whittling down and whittling down to sometimes my theories were completely disproven. Like I was thinking about it entirely wrong. And other times they were expanded upon in ways that I might've well have been wrong. Cause I was so small in the idea that it was so different or bigger than I thought. And I conducted several hundred interviews over a year and a half to two year period. Um, I tried to do three interviews a week, ranging anywhere from half an hour to two hours long. And I just tried to kind of schedule them out. And I tried to spread them out across you know, academia, professionals, educated, not educated. I tried to get as, as you know, common an opinion as possible, as well as as uncommon. And what amazed me is just kind of through the law of attraction and through that positivity and through practicing what I ended up writing about. Um, I just got lots of yeses. Like I reached when after the book was done, I wanted blurbs written about it. So I, I and Mark Randolph, the CEO of Netflix, had just released his book called uh, "That'll Never Work." So, like, that sounds just like my book. Cool. So, I sent him a LinkedIn message. I'm sorry, Mark, when you get inundated by LinkedIn messages. I sent him a literal LinkedIn message, like, "Hey, Mr. Randolph, my name is Kirk. Would you be willing to read my book and review it?" And he's like, "Sure, Kirk, send it over." And like, we ended up talking, and it's that's on my website, verybestbedidea.com. The nicest thing ever been written about me was written by a man I'd never met who agreed to read my book just as you stop being afraid of being told no you stop being told no and when you're told no it stops mattering very much like yeah. i was also told no by a lot of people but the yeses i got were incredible and so yeah the i just interviewed anyone who i thought might have an opinion whether they were a professional creative a professional non-creative doctors lawyers philosophers neuroscientists and and just kind of this phoenix from the ashes just kind of grew out of it yeah, I love that. And, you know, one of the questions I actually had for you was like, hey, you know, what were some of the people that you met along the way? I guess you, you know, met, it sounds like you've met a lot of people along the way, not only in the book, but then after the book. Absolutely. No, I mean, and the book came out and, and you know, as happens with with the books in this space, I, I was asked to be a speaker in a bunch of places. And I've I've been interviewed on on podcasts and I've had people reach out to me. Um, and yeah, like, oh, a tattoo shop in Utah flew me out to speak to their, they had a class of entrepreneurial tattoo artists. They were 
aspiring younger artists that both the tattoo business is really hard. Being a tattoo artist is really hard. The stigma around being a tattoo artist is can be hard. And these were young, most of them 20, young 20s to mid 20s. Uh, these were young, aspiring entrepreneurial tattoo artists. And a tattoo shop flew me out to speak to a class of, you know, 25 entrepreneurial tattoo artists about, yeah, let's do it. And so I got to meet these incredible artists and I've got to meet these incredible people and see incredible things and learn about how creativity has, you know, and being willing to look stupid yeah. can change just being just unafraid of looking dumb. So it changes you might, everything. You might find this really interesting, but you know, I'm working on the sequel to my book and my fantasy book. And so there is a section in this book where I am talking about magical creatures and kind of the history of how we became humans, like why aren't there vampires and whatnot. And so in this storyline, um, it is all about, well, uh, it's all about people who are kind of going, this is, this is me tying in my hypnosis stuff and how the brain yeah. works. Okay. So even though it's a fantasy story, I'm throwing in little things that are relatable with the brain. And so anyway, it's all about this process of when you let fear, when you let jealousy, when you let sadness come into your heart and your mind, when it becomes this consuming thing, you transition into this human, but you still have the magic of creativity, even though you're no longer a mermaid or a vampire or a werewolf or whatever it is, you're still a human with magic of creativity. So don't lose that. Sure. No, absolutely. So, it's sorry. Go ahead. No, that's just, that's, that's how strongly I feel like creativity is the magic. I was, I was, uh, this will, this ties into that. I was, I was just talking to, uh, one of my daughters, um, like last week and, and I was like, do me a favor, define magic for me. And she's like, and she just kind of slack jawed. Like it's, it's, um, I was like, come on, it's not hard. I mean, like, I don't mean stage magic. I don't mean fake magic. I mean, define Harry Potter mystical magic. What does it mean? And, and she kind of stumbled over and was like, let me, can I offer a definition? She's like, sure. I was like, being able to do something with your mind without touching it. Would that be magic? And she's like, absolutely. That's magic. And I was like, okay, work with me here for a second. I am going to, in my mind, formulate all my life experiences into a thought. I'm going to use my mouth to vibrate air through vibrate, uh, send vibrations through the air into your ears to have my life experience unfold into your imagination. She's like, I was like, that is speaking and that is magic. Mm -hmm. I can use words and I can use sounds and words and written things to communicate the innermost deeply recessed parts of my brain. And, and if I do it correctly, I can have that realized in your brain. How is that different than moving a spoon on a table? Yeah. It's harder than moving the spoon on the table. I'm doing something more difficult than that, but because communication is something we do so constantly, we forget how creative and capable and magical it is. It, it really is. I mean, to take something and, and allow somebody to see the same image as what's in your mind is pretty remarkable. And I really know how important that is, especially when I was like, 
trying to get artists to create the people that I see in my mind for my story. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> like we're seeing different things here. <laughs> right. And it's, it's so fat. Like, you know, I will absolutely, you know, pick up your book. And as I read it each page, it's sure it's not just the story you're telling, but it's also the story you're not telling. It's the world you're building. It's the, it's, you're sharing a piece of who you are, whether or not you intend to, you don't get much of a say once you've put it out there. And that's back to the very, that's why people are so afraid. If you don't like my story, you must not like me. And you must like, there's, it's very personal, but it's also very freeing. We, I get to, I'll get to read your book and see each page of it and get to know this, not just the story you wanted to tell, but who you are and what story was important to you and worth the pain of writing a book. Cause you and I both know writing a book is not a, a pleasant experience. It's very, it's very hard. Uh, yeah, but, but it's magic. It's mm -hmm. someone reading your words or listening to you speak and hearing what you think and intend when that happens effectively, it's, it's indistinguishable from magic. I agree with you. I love it. And I would also say that like when, when you're it's like, when you are writing your book, there's sure. a stretching process that happens and that stretching process, that's the painful part. That's the part where you have to face all of these things that you don't want to face, but then you evolve to a different person and then you get stretched more. <laughs> like it's never ending. So, um, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it really is like, you know, Sisyphus walking up the hill. It's like, you know, okay, when I get around, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a little bit further. And then you kind of, nope, it's a little bit further. It, it's, it, and what's really funny is, so my, my publisher had a soft policy that they tried to have books in the section, in the, in the segment that I was releasing, they tried to have their books roughly 50,000 words. And so I wrote my first draft. It was like 20 some odd thousand. And they're like, no. And like you said, stretch it out. You should add another section that talk that really kind of fills in this section. So um, really quick overview. Like I said, my first book was called Release the Creative. It's now the third section. And the my publisher came back and said, this is really great, but I need a section in front of this that talks, if you're going to talk about how to release the creative, you need to talk at first and define what creativity and nonconformity kind of is. So then I wrote this whole kind of other book. It was, you know, this first kind of preface, this first other section that was, that I'd never intended to write. It was just my publisher saying, look, for them to care about section three, section two needs to exist. And so I, I fleshed this whole thing out and that was gut. So I, I submitted the book the second time. They said, okay, love it. The problem is, is now that you're talking about conformity and you're now that you're talking about, you know, creativity and con yep. non-conformity and creativity, you should probably talk about conformity and why people think the way they do in the first place. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I had to write a third book. I mean, it's all the same book, but this third whole section that went into literally the, the section is the first section of the book is called the history of thinking. And it, it, again, I talked to so many people about it and I built out this story about the history of thinking and the history of conformity and the history of fitting in before I get to the second section, which is all about non-conformity and looking stupid. And to get to the third section, which was the book I'd intended to write about, you should just be creative when you want to be. And when we finally finished and the dust settled, my draft was 78,000 words. Ooh. And they're like, you got to pair that back, man. We said 50. I was like, oh, screw you. No, uh-uh. Like, this is like draft 3,000. It's a tight 78. 
the audible is five and a half hours long, which isn't even particularly long in book speak. Like it's like, and I had to kind of push back and fight with them a little bit, but finally they were, they, they sent it to a bunch of different editors and read it. They're like, no, we agree. It, it can't get much shorter without us removing things we told you to put in. Uh, so it's, you know, 78,000 words, but that was after over a year of being told to add to it things I had never, I'm not an expert in. I had no opinion on. I just wanted to talk about this third thing and it became, it became much bigger. And see, one of the reasons I love this is because the, the brain doesn't like the unknown and you were forced to be put in a situation where you're like, I don't know these things. I have to go and find them, which also, again, proves your point in your book of why we do certain things or why we don't do certain things. Absolutely. So what do you feel like was like your some of your, I won't say number one, but some of your fears that you kind of had to like, you know, wrestle with, overcome, face? in writing the book or just in general life well let's go with the book okay um like well like i was saying you know this isn't fiction to the point where i can go oh that you know i have a different story like this was me sharing truly the deepest kind of the, the core of my thoughts on how i think about things and as i talk about in the introduction and in the last thing I I am very neurodivergent. I learned through my process of of being bullied a lot and growing up and everything. So me just kind of finally saying, you know what, I'm coming out and I'm just going to, I'm going to lay it all out there was exciting. But even though the whole book is about not being afraid of looking stupid, the, the fact of the matter is I'm still a person and I was really afraid of like, dude, you're just, you are going to be torn apart. It, people are going to look at this and go, Oh, well, I guess we're not hiring that guy. He's crazy. Like I, I own a business. I, my business supports my, my, not just myself, but my colleagues and coworkers and subordinates and things. Mm -hmm. Me coming out and saying, everything, you know, is wrong. And your worst idea is your best. That's a bold claim. Um, it's also a moronic claim that makes people very uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I talk about that in the um, in the introduction where I say, as I posed this statement to more people, more experts, more people on the street, as I posted more, some people really got it and really got excited. And some people got like noticeably, viscerally angry. And they started to be like, well, that's just, no, you can't say, you and, and as I tried to peel that back and I realized that they didn't know why it made them angry. It just made them very uncomfortable that, that I was saying that their worst idea, the thing that they were afraid to talk about, that actually might be a really good idea and you shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. You could see often how angry that made, not at me, but them. They're like, no, I can't talk about this. People won't like it. They'll think I'm stupid. I can't. People got defensive at me sharing my idea, like not at me attacking their idea. I would share mine and they would get defensive. And I watched it happen more and more and more. And I was like, I'm onto something. This is making people very, very uncomfortable. And as, as I dug through it, I found out they didn't know why they just knew that they had ideas that they weren't sharing and wanted to. And that even for me to answer the you know question, it still came with a lot of risk on my part because I watched people get very angry with me as I was kind of postulating. And so sending that out into the world was scary, now, very, very scary. Did you do arc readers or did you just put it all out there? I mean, you oh, obviously um, had your team that read it and they gave you some type of support system, but. So any chapter that featured an interview or a person, 
I sent that chapter to that person and I asked them a couple, I was like, hey, what do you think? Was I true and honest in my telling of that? Uh, and what do you think of my point? And most people are like, this is awesome. This is great. Some people like said, I know I said that because I recorded all the interviews. I know I said that, but would you mind like helping me say it a little differently? Because yeah. I, I was like, not a problem at all. And so we did that. And some of my favorites actually, um, one uh, one of the academic institutions that interviewed me a fair amount, uh, that I interviewed a fair amount, I sent it to them and they said, all your facts are right. I I can't say that I agree with your conclusion, but you supported it well. Like, and okay. I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with you not agreeing with me. Yeah. The last chapter of the book is entitled, everything in this book is wrong. And I go in about how the whole point is that we're always learning and we're always, mm -hmm. we're always learning and we're always growing and we're always figuring out new stuff. So for me to write a book and then say, these are the facts, well, that defeats the entire point of the book. I released it knowing that it might be entirely wrong, but I'm okay with that. Cause yeah. that's the point. Yeah. I'm putting it out there for people to attack and tell me not just that's wrong. Okay. What part help me, help me dig into it. Where did I mess it up? Because it, it needs to be right for me. Uh, yeah. I would tell you like, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, well, you're obviously in the wrong career. <laughs> I'm like, you're obviously a coach. So no. Um, but when I, what I notice is that most people really don't know themselves. They know about themselves, but they Very really true. don't know themselves. And yeah, go ahead. I see you say something. so. So I swear I could do a, 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 an hour long keynote on this next thing. And I'm going to try very hard to keep it very, very <laughs> concise. But so the release, the creative is of course, a, a statement to release the Kraken. I actually have a full arm tattoo of the Kraken because mm -hmm. of this, of, of what I'm about to explain. And, and that is that, and it, I talk about this in the book, uh, the earth is covered in 70% water, 70% water. Yeah. And so is our body. We're like 70%. Very true. The uh, current biologists est estimate the amount of the sea life and seafloor that we have mapped and, and the sea exploration that has been done is between nine and 11%. So let's call it 10. Okay. So 10% of 70% of our planet has been cataloged and researched and understood to its full, to its, to its fullest. Right. Okay. And we have billionaires out there, you know, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, et cetera, that are rushing to Mars and the moon and the cosmos. We have the James Webb telescope and we have the Hubble telescope and we have all of these, these satellites going outward. And we still only know about 10% of 70% of ourselves. Yeah. Our own body, our own planet, our own celestial vehicle, we know strangely little about. And, you know, there's so much we, because we, we're looking out. Mm -hmm. And that is a perfect, perfect allegory for, for most people, myself included. This is not pointing fingers. Like, I learned so much about myself writing a book when I was forced to answer questions that I'd never been asked before. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I, I mentioned the Kraken is... The Kraken was first mentioned uh, by the King of Norway in 10, I've forgotten the year, like 1054, 1074, somewhere in the 10 hundreds. Since then, it has been referenced by Jules Verne. It's been referenced by thousands of writers. It's this mythological thing. But at the time, the biggest sea creature, we, the biggest octopus or cephalopod we knew of was the Great Pacific Octopus, which is, you know, 12 feet-ish. 
Um, until 2004, we found a first great squid. And then 2012, when we found a colossal squid even bigger than that. And then in 2000, I don't remember at this moment, when we found portions of a squid inside of a, uh, inside of a, a blue whale, that if the proportions were correct, this squid was hun over 100 feet long. Mm -hmm. And this giant squid and the was a myth until, I mean, it still is a myth by strict definitions, but we live on a planet with roommates we don't know. We yeah. have thoughts and feelings that we haven't explored. We have things about ourselves that we haven't addressed, but we are still working on going to Mars. And I'm not trying to cast, let's go to Mars. That's a cool idea. But we shouldn't stop looking in the ocean. And so the tattoo on my arm is actually the Kraken lifting a ship over rocks because okay. most most Kraken artwork is then destroying something. They're very destructive because we are trained as children to be terrified of things we don't know. There's a sea creature out there. It must want to eat me. There's something I can't see in the ocean. It must want me dead. It must be able to swallow an island, swallow a cruise ship. It must be out for blood when there's obviously no evidence to support that. There's just as much evidence to support that the Kraken was is out there tugging lost sea ships around problems i mean equal which is to say none of either but instead of choosing to be afraid of the unknown assume that the kraken is there to help you assume that the kraken's the, the reason you are not going to die at sea he's going to tug you out of the doldrums we can choose we can make a choice to be afraid of the unknown be afraid of our bad ideas or we can make a choice to go you know what maybe this idea will make me look stupid or maybe it won't and we have that choice to make Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't choose to be afraid of looking stupid. Yeah, and then I would further coach. <laughs> I would further coach and ask, why are you labeling this as a bad idea in the first place? Who defined this as a bad idea? And there it is. Mm -hmm. And there it is. It like, I'd be like, well, it's about it. So the, the, the this title, the third title, um, <laughs> finally was Rosa. At the time, my team was about five people that worked at my company, uh, seven total, me and the partner, and we had five employees. And uh, I got to this point where, as kind of a joke to encourage things, I was like, okay, everyone, I have a really bad idea. Like, I, I have, oh, this is terrible. And I would just preface it because I, in so many aspects of my life, had found more and more people just kind of like, oh, geez, like eye rolling at things. So I walked into like, you can't tell me it's bad. I told you it's bad. Like, mm -hmm. I have a terrible yeah, like a idea. Self-preservative it started off as a self-defense. It started off as like, okay, here's a bad idea. And then I started noticing that when I did that, people listened to the idea more. They were more willing to prove me wrong that it wasn't a bad idea. Then if you say, oh my gosh, I have the best idea. People immediately go, that won't work, Kirk. You have forgotten all about X. <laughs> but if I come yeah. in and go, you know, I have an idea. It's probably, it's probably not going to work, but people are like, you know what? That probably could work. People look for the right if you say it's wrong and people look for the wrong if you say it's right. So the idea was with the very best idea was I'm not going to let you label the idea. It's the very best bad. It just go with your ideas until you can make it work. Yeah. You know, I just, for me personally, I feel like most of everything is reversed. It is flipped. And I so, agree. and then it, and it becomes really hard because you, you see it one way and to flip something it, intuitively, you've been taught, no, no, no. And so you do have this moment, 
like one of the things that we talked about prior to coming on to um, the podcast today was just like, you know, one of the lessons that, that I teach people, one of the lessons I've learned is everything you want is on the other side of fear. So your life keeps getting repeated in the same groundhog day because we can't not, not always, but there's times when we don't face our fear and that's when we repeat it. So you go through this journey of facing this fear and you get to the other side and now you have a new groundhog day, (laughs) but, but I do see that everything is kind of flipped. Like in my own personal life, um, I was taught, you know, that for instance, um, like one of the things that led me into coaching was the fact that I had gone to like counseling forever. This is what you were told to do. And I was like, I hate this. Like I have a special needs kid. Right. And so part of the, the part of the um, advice that they will give you hands down, they will give this to everyone is we'll go to a support group. Well, when I went to a support group, everybody just talked about how difficult it was. And I'm like, this isn't for me. This doesn't work for me. Like it had to be flipped. Like I need to go to places where we talk about how awesome it is to have a special needs kid. Like I need something different, but I, I was also raised differently than other people. I was a foreign exchange student. I was mute as a kid. I was alone by myself. So I wasn't raised kind of in this, um, you know, bubble that a lot of people are in because I had my own personal bubble. So it's just, so sometimes I'm like, it takes a lot sometimes to reach people at their core because there Absolutely. is so much programming that goes on. So I'm very excited about this book. And what do you, what do you think people are going to experience when they read it? So it's one of two things. It, it really is. And I mean, I, it, it's a it's a divisive book and not because I'm controversial in it. I, I tried to be entertaining for the record. I tried to keep it very light <laughs> and fun. I mean, at one point I talk about uh, how mankind rode into battle on the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I'm dead serious. That's in the book. Um, I, I, I talk like about that. how the fan. I talk about how the founding fathers descended Mount, Mount, Mount Vernon with the Constitution written on the finger uh, written on stone tablets by the finger of the great almighty. Um, and then I immediately go in to say, or I might be getting my internet stories mixed up, but like. I tried to make it as fun as possible. I tried to make it as accessible as possible. I didn't want it reading like a textbook or a philosophy book as much as I like textbooks and philosophy books. I wanted it to feel fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my experience from talking to people, uh, a, a large portion of people tell me it, it just really made them question the, sorry, everyone I've talked to that has offered me their opinion has said it made them kind of really question a lot. A significant number of them would say, and it really helped them through a thing or look at a thing different or or even if it didn't help them on a specific thing, it just helped them see the world a little differently. The other group is is uh, same same reaction, different reaction to it that, like I said, they they didn't like how cavalier I was with some of these things, how telling them that their secrets aren't as bad as they think and getting things out there and a lot of people get there's a chance you'll feel uncomfortable at things I'm I'm postulating. There are things that I say that they are opinions or they are they are my statements that that can make people go, well, that's not right. That's not true. Cool. Email me. Let me know. I want to know where I messed up. I want to have the conversation because I make no pretense that everything in that book is a thousand percent correct. It's just my perspective right now. Mm. Um 
but it it will make you question things and a lot of times that will be good but depending on what you decide to question because i don't i don't tell you what to question but deciding what you choose to question it might make it might be uncomfortable and and for somebody who coaches this makes me ecstatic i'm like ready to high five you like <laughs> because to question something i think is truly one of the best freedoms that we have it's when you fail to question something that you're really giving up part of your freedom but people don't was, know that i was just having this conversation just the other day like within the last five days i was like I truly don't care if people think I'm stupid. I don't care if you agree with me. I don't care if you disagree with me. I don't care. It, the only thing that bothers me in this entire world about talking to people, I will get into debates with with alt-right, crazy left. I, I, It doesn't matter. I will engage. But the moment I get, they stop listening and it's like, nope. No, the, the moment you aren't willing to walk me through it, like I'm not trying to prove you wrong. I need you to help me understand. I'm going to question things and... The minute you stop being a part of the conversation and you just stand like Stonewall, mm -hmm. that bothers me. Because like, how is that? How is that helping you or me? Like, how is how is shutting the communication good for anyone? There's no wrong opinion. That's not true. But like, there's there's no bad opinion. An opinion, a perspectives are earned. You earned your perspective. Even if your perspective is wrong, you earned it. Your life experience got you to where you are. Every opinion you have, you earned. Someone put it there. You got there somehow. You didn't just decide one day a thing you fundamentally believed. You earned that. The only thing in this world that truly bothers me is when people aren't willing to engage with themselves on why they believe the things they believe. You can believe whatever you want. I don't, I have no opinion on what your opinions are, but I want you to know why you believe things. And, and last little, when I was a kid, my dad would kind of debate me on kind of everything. Like I would say, capital punishment is wrong. And he would debate it. And I'd say, this is wrong. And he'd debate it. And I'd say, capital punishment is right. And he would debate it. And kind of at the end of every, no matter what my stance was, he was the opposite. I was in my twenties before I found out that my father was actually fairly liberal because while still being fairly concerned, because my dad was my entire life, whatever I wasn't, if I had an opinion, he was the other one. And he ended basically every, and it wasn't as argumentative or combative as it might sound, but every conversation he ended with Kirk, I do not care what you believe, but you're going to know why you believe it. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with you believing anything you want, but you have to be okay with asking questions, even of your own beliefs. You can't just stand on because I said so, or because I feel it, or because that's how I, you earned your perspective, know how you got there. You know, that's one of the things that blew my mind when I first started um, studying hypnosis was that a belief is just something you believe is true. <laughs> like it's that simple. And it's like, wow, my whole world is just built on random things that I decided to believe was true or not true. <laughs> like, um, and, and I learned how little facts there really are in this life. And that was mind blowing too, because I still, oh, it makes people really I, uncomfortable. Well, I still today, like I'll be walking around and be like, is that really there? Is this really true? I'm like, I just like freak myself out with these, um, these moments, but I like, it's because I like it. Everything in this world, everything is way 
more nuanced than people are willing to admit. And people are like, this is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. I'm like, I am not saying this yeah. isn't, I, I agree. This is right. And this is wrong, but you have to, the world isn't black and white. And actually that's just really dark gray and really light gray. The world <laughs> is infinitely nuanced, infinitely nuanced. And anytime you try to make a blanket statement on anything, I mean, even scientific theorems, you know, the, the, not to go down this rabbit hole, but the, uh, the, the, a Nobel Prize for Physics in 2022, where was was people proving, air quotes, proving sections of Einstein's theory of relativity, considered the like the mainstay of physics for the last you know decades and decades. I'm not going to pretend like I know the number. Uh, what was incorrect? So even things that are facts and benchmarks and. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm not a nihilist who believes in nothing. I'm actually the opposite. I believe in everything. I believe there is truth in everything. You just need to find the edges of that truth. You need to find out why, why your bad idea, why is it bad? Why do you think it's bad? Who made you think it's bad? Who made you think you're bad? Mm -hmm. I don't believe in nothing. I believe in everything. I believe that there's, there is truth to be found in every concept, and we just have to explore that. And I love it. And I'm so glad to have you on the podcast and to be able to talk to you and learn more about your book. I guess I would ask you if there's any final notes that you wanted to, you know, sign off on, like, are you having um, any presentations coming up or things that webinars that people can join you on? Is there anything that we'll be putting in the show notes to lead people? So, to? Uh, that's a really cool question. It's, it's interesting just to the effect of, um, just to the effect of, you know, this is the second time I've said laws of attraction on this particular and law of attraction isn't something that I am a, a, a particular or specific advocate of. But I had uh, I had a full uh, full speaking tour scheduled and then the pandemic kind of shut it down and the world started waking up. Mm -hmm. And I had literally just been talking to to people in my life. I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to start trying to get my book back out there and trying to start, you know, re uh realiving that's resuscitating my <laughs> realiving, realiving is a hot word right now yeah well yeah totally totally like uh try stop trying to make fetch happen anyway <laughs> for those who get that joke cool. um i just started trying to resuscitate the speaking tour and literally like day one of that i came across your tiktok saying if you're an author reach out to me if you want to be on my podcast i was like let's start there so the answer to your question is no, I don't, but I'm, I'm on a journey. This is a mission of mine that the pandemic genuinely kind of put a, put a big, uh, a big foot out and tripped me up a little bit, but I'm heading out there. Check out my website, the very, be uh, very best bad idea.com. Mm -hmm. I'm on Amazon. Uh, reach out to me. I'm happy to engage it, anyone on anything. I love, I love talking about this stuff. So no, there's nothing they can reach out to, but please just reach out to me if you want to talk. I love that. And I guess I are, is there a sequel to this book? Is there a, a buddy of sister brother coming out? <laughs> you know, that's not so, a sequel, but. Uh, three, three very quick answers to that question. Uh, one, yes, I've decided I put my, I was writing a second book uh, about the nature of creativity and to define creativity and define art. One person says it's art. One person says it's garbage. Like let's define what, what does art mean? And I, I was halfway through a draft on that. And I ended up actually putting that on the back burner because I'm, because of everything I just said about the pandemic and everything. And I have learned a lot. I'm actually working on, on uh, the very, 
Sorry. I'm actually working on the very best bad idea uh, second edition where I kind of, you know, because this came out in April of 2020, the pandemic isn't in there. And the response to like, there's a lot of things that I think that I could sharpen up and, and make better uh, that I, that I am doing. So that's the sequel, the very best bad idea, but I'm also working on, this is hysterical. I think you might not think so, but it's a bad idea that I think is going to work. And it's called, um, uh, uh, collaborate, cooperate, and laugh, a picture book for executives. Oh, and okay. there's a book that I started writing a few years ago, but I, I was having a hard time doing what I explained, what we explained of expanding it into anything more than just, it was just, it was a pamphlet. And I was like, I can't release a brochure and I don't want to force this to be a book. And my daughter, she's in high school. Uh, she's an artist and she's a very brilliant artist. And so I talked to her, I was like, do you want to illustrate a children's book? And so I, I'm rewording it away from being this kind of high-minded book about uh, management theory, and I'm parsing it down to being remarkably simple. And uh, I'm, it's going to be 20, 30 pages illustrated like a children's book called Collaborate, Cooperate, and Laugh, a picture book for executives. Well, I love it. Actually, I do know another book that teaches this uh, on a different concept, but the same uh, it's it's an adult book, but it's totally like written as if it's a kid's book. But I love that I didn't come up with that. No, it's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I do know another, and it's done well. So, um, well, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for sharing your experience and your wisdom. And I look forward to following you and learning more about all of the additions that you're adding. Absolutely. So, likewise, I'm looking forward to your book as well. Thank you. All right, everybody, take care. I love you. I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you for staying with me to the end of the podcast. My intention is for you to receive valuable content that leads you to create the life you desire. I certainly love sharing my gifts with you. Could I please ask that you share this podcast with your friends and loved ones if you found value in it? Also, it would be so helpful if you could leave a five-star review on Apple. I would greatly appreciate it. If you would like to be interviewed on this podcast, if you have a topic that you would like me to cover, or if you would like to work one-on-one -on -one with me, then DM me on my socials. Everything you need to find me is in the show notes. Make it a great day.